All right. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Ohayou gozaimasu. Um, uh, good to be here with you guys. Uh, always a joy to worship the Lord in this place. Um, see some new faces. Uh, pray that you're ministered to as you gather with us this morning and that um, you feel welcome uh, for the familiar faces. We're really glad to have you with us. Um, Let's go ahead at this time. We'll uh, dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class as well as our Bible English class. We'll dismiss them as well. <coughs> I hope you all enjoyed this uh, last week here in Iwakuni. The weather's kind of been all over the place. Uh, snow earlier this week. Uh, last couple days seems to be warming up a bit. Um, not really sure if it's going to get cold again or stay warm again, or it's kind of all over the place. Uh, I don't know if it's from the change in weather or what, but I did come down with a little bit of a cold. Um, and so I hope to be able to get through this morning's teaching without any uh, hindrance. If I sound a little nasally, you, you'll know why. So forgive me. Uh, speaking of this morning's teaching, we're going to be continuing our way through the book of Second Timothy. Last week, we finished off chapter one of Second Timothy by covering the final 11 verses of the chapter from verse eight all the way to verse 18 in a message that I entitled Unashamed. In our text last week, Paul exhorted his son in the faith, Timothy, to not be ashamed. He was not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ and the sufferings uh, of Christ. And um, he was to follow in Paul's example of not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was not to be ashamed of the doctrines of Christ, nor the ministry of Christ. This morning, we're going to work our way into 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through uh, this small but impactful book. And so if you have your Bible with you go, and you haven't done so already, why don't you go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to look around. Some of the chairs around you have Bibles placed uh, under the racks of some of the chairs throughout the sanctuary. Uh, we do think it's important that you're able to follow along in the Bible as we go through it verse by verse. And then... Uh, once you've found your way to 2 Timothy 2, I'm going to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word. Okay? 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Our text this morning is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And the title of our study together is going to be The Need for Grace. The Need for Grace for grace. Paul continues to exhort and encourage Timothy, building off of what he said in chapter one about the need for Timothy to continue the work of the ministry, to not be ashamed of Christ and the sufferings that come with a life lived for Christ. Paul states the following in verse one, chapter two of the book of second Timothy. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Verse five. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. 
That's the word of, of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to come into this place, to open our Bibles, to read your word, and to allow your word to, to speak to us. Lord, as Paul exhorted Timothy to uh, consider what he had to say and um, requested that God give understanding. Lord, we want to ask that same thing. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding into your word and into your heart. Lord, that we might know your will and your ways and that we might yield, be yielded to them. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you, to your word, and we ask that you would continue to be with us this morning and that you would lead us and guide us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> As we make our way into chapter 2 of the book of 2 Timothy, Paul, in writing to Timothy, is going to start laying out some of the main things that Timothy is going to need in order to fulfill the calling upon his life as a pastor and as a steward of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And, and while Paul is writing to Timothy in regard to his specific calling as a pastor uh, to the church in Ephesus and as his running mate in furthering the gospel message, we'll see that the things Paul shares with Timothy really are things that are applicable to each and every one of us as Christians and stewards of the gospel. Because every single believer is a steward of the gospel. We have received the wonderful news of the gospel. And in turn, we are responsible for living out the gospel in our own lives. We are responsible for sharing it with those around us. And so as we go through and note what Paul has to say to Timothy, we're also going to look to see how these same things apply to us as well. For those of you who like to take notes, uh, outline our text. I have taken the liberty of dividing our text into three small sections as it pertains to the need for grace. In verse 1, we're going to look at the power of grace. And then in verses 2 through 6, we're going to look at illustrations of grace and then finally, in verse 7, we're going to look at the application of grace. And so let's dive into this first section dealing with the power of grace by rereading our introductory verse, verse 1. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 starts off with the words, you therefore. Now, anytime you come across the word therefore in the Bible, you ought to pause and ask yourself, what is the word therefore, therefore, right? Well, what's it therefore? Because the word therefore is a transitional word that's used in reference to something that's come about as a result of something else. When Paul writes you therefore, he's giving to Timothy an exhortation based upon the information that he just had given to Timothy. And what was it that Paul just spoke to Timothy about? Well, he just finished speaking to him about the need for Timothy to be unashamed, for him to be, uh, hold fast and to keep the charge that had been given to him. That charge involved holding fast to the sound doctrine Timothy had heard from Paul and Timothy's need to keep the teachings of Christ that had been passed on to him through Paul. And so Paul's telling Timothy something based upon the fact that Paul just exhorted him to be unashamed. Paul just exhorted him to hold fast of the teachings of Jesus Christ that Paul had passed on to him. And what is it that he tells him? He tells him, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The word be strong in the Greek is the word indunamao. 
Indunamao. It comes from the Greek prefix en, uh, en, it just means in, and then the word dunamis, which means power. Uh, or ability, either physical or moral strength. And so the idea is that Timothy is to be strengthened by or empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The only way that Timothy will be able to live a life unashamedly for the gospel and to hold fast to the teachings of Christ is in and through the grace of God. Timothy needs to be strong in grace. He needs to be empowered by grace. Your translation may read. Now, we've looked at the topic of God's grace many times here before at Calvary. Uh, the grace of God, it's the word charis. In the Greek, it is God's unmerited favor upon us. It is us getting what we do not deserve. And primarily, when we think of the grace of God, we are reminded of the work of salvation that God's done in us and through us. We are saved by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. According to Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, our salvation was not the result of any works that we did. Okay. We didn't earn our salvation by uh, reading our Bibles or going to church or being baptized in water or going door to door and evangelizing or giving money to the church or, or performing any other sort of religious duties or activities. No, we are saved by the grace of God, his unmerited favor upon us, a gift from God that we are to simply receive by faith. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Those things like reading your Bible and, and going to church and getting baptized and sharing your faith are all very important things that we ought to do, but they are not what saves us, okay? We are saved by faith, not works. I've heard it some say it a different way, saying we're not saved by faith and works, but by a faith that works. The natural byproduct of God's grace being poured out upon you in salvation is that you ought to want to do those types of things as a way to develop and enrich your relationship with God. They are not the means of our salvation, but a byproduct of our salvation. And so grace is what we need for salvation. But I don't think that is exactly what Paul's referring to here when telling Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul is speaking about Timothy needing to be strong in the grace of God for his salvation. The work of salvation has already been done in the life of Timothy. Timothy is saved. He is a believer. And so Paul must be referencing something else here. A need for grace in a different area of Timothy's life. You see, we need God's grace not just for eternal life in heaven, but also for our temporal life here on earth. The power of God's grace is not limited to the work of our salvation. No, it is far more powerful than that. And in verses 2 through 6, Paul gives us four different illustrations of how the grace of God would be needed for Timothy's temporal life here on earth. How Timothy would need God's grace to live an unashamed, uncompromised life for Christ. And so let's look at each illustration one by one, beginning with the illustration found in verse 2 regarding the faithful teacher. Take a look at verse two. He says, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Paul admonishes Timothy here in verse two to commit the things that he had heard from Paul to faithful men who would in turn teach others. Here we see four layers of faithful teaching and sharing. God, uh, Christ shared with Paul. Paul shared with Timothy. Timothy was to share with faithful men who were then to share with others. Okay? This is a great plan for discipleship and mentorship, receiving from one and then turning around and reciting to another that they in turn may receive and recite to others, continuing the pattern on and on. This form of teaching and sharing would quickly multiply itself over and over, creating exponential growth in both teachers and students of the word of God. If Timothy would commit to this exhortation of Paul's, it wouldn't be long before the teachings of Christ would expand across the whole entire Roman Empire. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. Now, I want to note something here regarding this plan Paul had for Timothy. It involves two major elements. The first element is the need to receive the truth. Before Timothy could go out and speak the truth, as a faithful teacher, he needed to first receive the truth. And this speaks of the importance of coming and receiving from the word of God. You know, we gather here together on um, Sunday mornings, okay, and uh, on Wednesday evenings to worship and praise our Lord, to receive from him through his word. Our children go to Sunday school class to receive the word of God. Okay, our youth come here on Friday nights to receive the same. Our women's and our men's groups gather together to receive sound doctrine, good, solid teaching that we may receive from the Lord. That's why it's so important for us to faithfully attend services where the word of God is being faithfully taught. Because before we can go out and be teachers of the word, we need to first be students of the word. Okay, and that involves personal study at home. Okay, your own devotional life. It involves gathering for church services just like this one to hear the word of God taught and for us to take it in as students of the word. But there's a second element that's involved here. Once you receive the truth, you must turn around and recite the truth. You must share the truth with others. There needs to be a proper balance, a steady inflow as well as a steady outflow. Okay, if all we do is come and receive and we never give out, we're going to get backed up, okay? We're, we're going to get spiritually unhealthy, spiritually bloated, if you will. And inevitably, what ends up happening is that you end up losing your appetite for the Word of God, right? Have you ever been to some of these all-you-can-eat yakiniku restaurants uh, around here, okay? Now, in my household, when our older boys were growing up, uh, we used to take them all the way out to Shunan to a place called Susume Viking. Uh, it's a all-you-can-eat yakiniku, and it's like the cheapest one around because they're expensive. Uh, but we would take them out there for special occasions, then birthdays and, and you know comings and goings and, and whatnot, um, going away parties. And my boys and I would eat you know, so much meat. Uh, in addition to ice cream, they also had ice cream that was all you can eat too. And so you just get ice cream and meat and ice cream and meat. And you just kept going back for more 90 minutes, like nonstop. The boys, they got their money's worth and then some, but you know, it would get to the point where they practically make themselves sick to their stomach eating so much. Now, praise the Lord, nobody ever ralphed in the restaurant. Uh, there were a couple touch-and-go moments on the way home, like hitting bumps, and they go, oh, 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 you okay? 
But as we leave from the restaurant, the thought of eating another bite of ice cream or another piece of grilled meat was simply repulsive, right? You guys, spiritually speaking, the same can happen, okay? When all we do is come and receive and receive and receive, and we just take in and we take in spiritual meal after spiritual meal after spiritual meal. It's being taught to us, but we don't have any sort of healthy outflow. We don't take what we've learned and share it with others. We don't apply it. We don't disciple other people, pour into other people, minister to others. You're going to get backed up, okay? And inevitably, your appetite for the word will wane. You won't hunger for the word anymore. And you won't hunger to come to church anymore. And you'll be thinking, you know what? I'm full. I don't need to go back there and get more. You won't be excited to come to feed on the word because you're still stuffed from the last time you came. There's no healthy outpouring of what you've received. And that, that's why it's so important that we not only come and receive the truth, but that we also are faithful to in turn share the truth, to talk about it with our friends, our family, our loved ones, our neighbors and our community, to teach others about you know, all the wonderful things that God has been showing you and, and teaching you. And hopefully it will have an impact upon them in such a way that they would want to learn more about the Lord and they would want to start to go out and tell people about the wonderful things they're learning from the Lord. And so we see the need here for the faithful teacher to both receive the truth and to recite the truth, to share the truth. Now, you may be asking yourself, but what does this have to do with being strong in grace? Right? And how is this an illustration of grace? Well, those are good questions. And let me answer them. Okay, let me explain by quoting to you what Paul had to say in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, and that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, uh, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says that it was only by the grace of God given to him that he was able to become a preacher and a teacher to the Gentiles. It wasn't because he was the most gifted teacher. It wasn't because he was the most persuasive with his words or because he was really good in front of a crowd, okay? He didn't have some sort of advantage over others. It was all a work of God's grace, Right? Paul became a faithful teacher of the gospel as a result of God's grace upon his life. It isn't about being the smartest or the most elegant or persuasive with our words that makes us great candidates to be teachers of God's word. In fact, oftentimes it could be the opposite. For Paul writes in 1 Corinthians how God hasn't called many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the 
foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God's chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Many people are afraid to share what they're learning with others because they think they don't know enough or that they aren't very elegant with their words. But that makes us great candidates for the Lord to choose by his grace. And so as the word goes forth from you, they wouldn't say, oh, wow, he's such an elegant, graceful speaker. That's the grace of God right there. And God gets all the glory. The faithful teacher is a product of God's grace. And I hope to identify myself as a faithful teacher. And I would tell you that the only way that I am here before you teaching is by the grace of God. Okay? And it is the grace of God that will equip all of us to be faithful teachers of God's word as well. Let's look at the second illustration Paul used to illustrate the need for Timothy to be strong in grace. Read with me verses three and four where Paul speaks about the good soldier. He says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please, did I read verse three? No, verse three, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Thank you. Um, Again, Paul writes here in verse three, you therefore drawing us back to the point about Paul's need or Timothy's need to be strong in grace. Because Timothy needs to be strong in the grace of God, Paul exhorts him here to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea behind enduring hardship is the idea of suffering physical pain, hardship, and or distress. And Paul uses the imagery of a good soldier. Okay, I think we could insert good marine, okay, if you guys feel more comfortable with that, okay? Uh, and, and paints the picture of a battle-tested soldier that's seen time on the front lines. They know what hardship is like. They understand physical pain, okay, and distress, but they don't surrender. They don't back down. They don't quit. They persevere. They endure. Timothy was experiencing hardship and suffering at this time. Persecution is on the rise. Not only was Timothy experiencing outside persecution, but also testing and fighting from within the church was happening as well. And Paul tells Timothy he needs to endure as a good soldier for the Lord. You know, you and I, we are all soldiers in the Lord's army. And we are in a battle. Ephesians chapter 6 makes it very clear that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And we all must endure the hardships of the spiritual battle we are in. And the question is, are we going to try and do so physically in our own strength or spiritually in the strength that God provides? 2 Corinthians reads this. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Okay, they're not of the flesh. Okay, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We are in a spiritual battle. God provides us with weapons that are spiritual and mighty. Yet so many of us try to fight the battles we face in the flesh, in our own strength, right? Thinking that we need to man up. We need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we need to dig deep down inside and muster up all the strength we can in and of ourselves. And yet as we do so, we continue to falter. We continue to take casualties in this warfare. 
We need to be fighting the battle and enduring hardship and the strength that God provides through the, the spirit, not the flesh. If we rely upon the flesh and our own power, we will continue to fall. We will continue to be defeated. But if we look to God and his resources and we begin to fight the fight in the power of God's spirit, all of a sudden we'll see that the victory that seemed to always elude us becomes our own. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to stop looking to the flesh and our own strength and start fighting the battle in the power and might of God's Holy Spirit. And how does this tie into the need for Timothy to be strong in the grace of God? Well, Ephesians 6.12 is what I read to you. Ephesians 6.13 says this, though. The very next verse. Okay? It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may able, be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The spiritual battle is won when we are able to stand our ground. When we endure hardship, we don't abandon our post. We stand our ground. Let me tell you something. Do you realize that the Bible tells us that it is God's grace that allows us to stand? Okay, it, it makes us capable of standing. Romans 5.2 speaks about how it is through Jesus Christ that we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Okay, we stand in grace. If we want to be a good soldier and stand our ground, enduring hardships, we're going to need the grace of God, which enables us to stand. Well, not only does Paul mention the need to endure as a good soldier, but he also highlights the fact about how a good soldier does not entangle, uh, get entangled with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so we see here the need to not only endure hardship and the strength God provides, but we also see that a good soldier won't get entangled or preoccupied with, uh, sucked into the affairs of this life. And the reason they don't do so is because they have their mindset on one very important thing, to please him who enlisted him as a soldier, to please his commanding officer, to see to it that his commanding officer's orders are fulfilled. You see, a good soldier doesn't live to please himself. He isn't just looking out for himself and his own wishes, his own desires. No, a good soldier is concerned with fulfilling the wishes and desires of his commanding officer. That is his priority. And you guys understand this better than most. You're, you, you're in the military, okay? You understand what it means to be a, a, a good soldier, a good marine, a good sailor, Okay? A good marine, a good soldier, a good uh, sailor uh, is one who follows orders and makes it a priority to see his commanding officer's orders fulfilled. The marine or sailor or soldier that causes problems for his CO and for the rest of his squadron or unit are often the ones who've gotten caught up and entangled in the affairs of this life, right? And they got caught up in thinking only about themselves and what they wanted, and they end up causing a whole lot of damage. Now, the application is quite easy to see. We are the ones enlisted in God's army. We are his soldiers. And our number one priority ought to be to please him, to glorify him, to see that his will and his commands are followed. As good soldiers for the Lord, we don't get caught up in seeking after the things of this world. Right? The Bible states, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, during his Sermon on the Mount, he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The people were worrying about clothing. They were worried about food. And he says, look, don't worry about those things. You seek first the kingdom of God. I'll take care of all that other stuff. Okay? God knows what you need. He'll take care of you. You don't need to worry about the things of this world. Seek God first. Make him your priority and God will take care of the rest. God's grace will see us through. Let's continue in our text this morning, looking at Paul's third illustration. This time he brings up the picture of an honest athlete. Read verse five. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, Paul often used sports and athletics as a way to speak about uh, our life in Christ, how we are to run the race and we're to fight the good fight and we're to press toward the goal for the prize. Here, Paul once again uses the imagery of an athlete, but he does so in a way that's a little different from what he normally would do. Paul tells Timothy that, the, that only the athlete who competes according to the rules is eligible to be crowned the victor. You see, if you cheat, if you don't follow the rules, you're going to be disqualified. Okay, and we understand that very easily. Okay, if you get caught cheating, you end up disqualified. You forfeit any crowns you may have otherwise won. In today's world of sports, it seems like, you know, the rules are always being pushed to their limit. Uh, athletes seek out advantages as much as possible within the limitations of the rules and sometimes beyond the limitations of the rules. And sometimes athletes go beyond and they get punished for it, you know. Um, the Summer Olympics are, are coming up this year uh, and it could be. You know, that there will be Olympians who get caught using uh, performance-enhancing drugs or get caught in other, some sort of other form of cheating. And, you know, the medals that they would have won, the crowns, if you will, that they're going to be stripped from them. It's happened before. Uh, it, it happens often, uh, in fact. Um, and, you know, there's... Unfortunately, I would say today there's not a lot of integrity in sports. Uh, scandals seem to be more of the norm as each year seems to reveal yet another scandal involving athletes or teams that have not played according to the rules. Okay? Well, here in this verse, Paul admonishes Timothy regarding the need to compete according to the rules. That it is only the honest athlete, the one with integrity, if you will, that will receive a crown. Now, we understand, and it's obvious, that Paul's not speaking to Timothy about his need to train for the upcoming games in Athens. They had games and competition at this time. They would run, they'd wrestle, they would do different things. And he's not talking about that, right? He is definitely using this metaphorically as an example. And so we have to understand, what is he talking about then? The rules. And well, the rules in this case speak to the word of God and the fact that Timothy needs to abide by the word of God. Timothy needs to compete to do all that he can in pressing toward the goal, but he needs to do so in obedience to God's word. He can't cut corners. He can't do things his own way. He needs to stick to the rules. He needs to stick to the pattern of sound doctrine that's been passed down to him from Paul. God isn't just concerned with the end product. He is concerned with how we get there as well. 
You know, some people believe and teach that the ends justify the means, but that is not a biblical concept. God cares just as much about the means as he does the end result. He wants us to operate with integrity, to do things the right way according to his word. And so here Paul tells Timothy of his need to be obedient to the word of God and his, as he competes for the lives of those around him. Now, I think most of us have a desire to obey God, or at least I hope that we all have a desire to be obedient to God, right? We want to obey him. We want to live our lives according to his word, but we don't always have the strength or the ability to do so. And I'm sure many of us have made commitments to the Lord in times past, maybe even recently, where we'd say, okay, God, you know, today's the day. Yeah, today, today I'm going to you know, start living my life according to your word. I'm going to be obedient to you, right? It's, you know, this is it. No more playing around. No more messing around. Today's the day, and, and I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to make this happen. I'm going to be obedient to you, God. And we may start out okay. And we may go for a, a few days, maybe a few weeks. Maybe some of you here could last a, a few months. Um, but inevitably, we end up stumbling along the way. We begin to fatigue. We falter. And we fall short. And we can get really bummed out and be overwhelmed with a sense of defeat. And we may even come to the point where we simply throw up our hands and we feel like just throwing in the towel and we say, you know what, God, I just can't do it. It's just too hard. I can't be obedient to your word. I can't do it anymore. And you know what God would do? I imagine him looking down saying to us, I know. I, I know that you can't do it. But even more importantly, now you know that you can't do it on your own. God knows that we can't do it on our own. He knows we can't be obedient in our own strength. When we finally come to the same realization, it is then that we can finally look to God and simply say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. And God will be faithful to provide what we need. And what we need to be obedient is, well, I'm sure you won't be surprised when I say this, God's grace. Romans 1.5 states that through him, that is Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. It is only by the grace of God that we're able to live a life of obedience through Christ. We can't do it on our own. We need God. And God is right there to help us and to provide us with what we need. His amazing grace. Let's look at this final illustration Paul mentions in verse 6, dealing with the hardworking farmer. He says, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. This little saying here is a little more challenging to understand when it comes to what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. Uh, we can understand the illustration of the hardworking farmer, how he must be first to partake of the crops. Um, you know, the farmer, he puts in all the backbreaking labor of farm life with the hope and then the intention of receiving a crop of uh, a reward, if you will, for his labors. And it is the potential fruit of his efforts that motivates him to keep going on. Even when storms come and even when weeds grow up, he doesn't give up, but he continues to tend to and care for his crops, hoping and believing that all of his efforts will be worth it. 
right? A farmer that works hard needs to be nourished and supported by the crops of his fields. If he doesn't take care of himself, he won't have the strength to continue his work. Not only does he partake of the fruit of the crop, but he also partakes of the proceeds from his crops. He takes what's needed for his own sustenance, and then he takes the rest to market, and he sells the goods that he may buy more seed and more supplies for the next crop. You see, if he doesn't partake of the proceeds of his labors, he'll not be able to continue sowing and tending to his crops, and he'll be left without sustenance. And so we understand this idea, the life of a farmer, right? Uh, even if we're not a farmer, we still understand these basic principles. But what exactly is the point Paul's wanting to make towards Timothy? Uh, I can see it in a few different ways. Okay? One way this could apply to Timothy is his need to be like the farmer who continuously works tirelessly while patiently waiting for the harvest to come in. You see, ministry isn't always going to be an instant reward. In fact, that's often not the case. Okay? Like the farmer, you have to do a lot of work sometimes before you start to see any sort of growth, before you start to see any sort of lasting fruit in ministry. The farmer has to continue to put forth the effort uh, to work hard even when he doesn't see any sort of visible growth. He continues forward, trusting in the process and in the timing of God to bring about the harvest at just the right moment in the right season. He must not grow weary while doing good, but continue in his efforts, knowing and believing what Galatians teaches us that in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. And so that's one way to look at it. Another way this can apply to Timothy is that Timothy is to be like the farmer in that as he studies and reads and teaches God's word to others, as described in verse 2 of our text, that he will be the first to partake of the spiritual nourishment that he gets from his studies. Okay, I often find that as I study each week for Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings that I receive a whole lot more than what I can give out. I get super blessed as I dive into God's word and I, I do my word studies and I do my cross references and I do my outlines and, you know, I read different commentaries and, and different, you know, uh, resources that are available. And, you know, I get out of the study far more than whatever I can deliver on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. I have to pick and choose and say, okay, I'm going to pick this and this and this. And, but I got all of this great stuff. In that manner, I'm being the first to partake of the spiritual nourishment and sustenance from my efforts and labors in the Word. You know, you can't give out what you first don't receive yourself. Okay, if I didn't study and labor in the Word each week, I wouldn't have anything to come up here and say to you week by week. Right? I must first partake of the spiritual nourishment of the Word myself prior to ever bringing it to anyone else. And this seems to align with what Paul said to Timothy in his first letter to him back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. There, Paul said, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Timothy needed to make sure that as he labored in the word, that he was being nourished and supplied by the word as well. That he wasn't just giving out without ever taking in and receiving for himself. And then one final way that this text could be perceived has to do with Timothy being physically or financially supported from his work as a minister of the gospel. That just as the farmer gets to partake of the proceeds of his crop, uh, so too Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus has the right to be supported from his work by the tithes and offerings that come in uh, from the church. And while this certainly is a biblical principle, I'm not so sure it is the point that Paul is making to Timothy here in regards to his need to be strong in the grace of God. Of course, 
Being supported through the ministry is a work of God's grace. That's 100% true, okay? Uh, I don't take it for granted that, you know, God supports myself and my family through the gracious tithes and offerings that come in through this church. You know, I'm routinely blown away at God's goodness and his faithfulness. It is uh, a work of God's grace. Uh, Definitely don't deserve it. He's very good. Um, And so... Which way is meant by Paul here? In a couple different ways it could be interpreted. I don't know for sure. eh? But one thing I do know is that the emphasis in each of these situations is Timothy's need to be a hard worker. The main description of this farmer is not that he was just any farmer, but he was a hard-working farmer. Timothy needed to be a hard worker. He needed to serve God diligently, faithfully, tirelessly. He needed to put in the hard work before he would be able to partake of any of the fruits of his labor. And so how could Timothy serve God in this manner, right? How could he labor for God in a manner that is worthy and acceptable before God? Listen to what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians. He wrote, but by the grace of God. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul was able to labor more abundantly than all the rest, not because of his own strength, not because of his own might, but because of the grace of God. He said, I did all of this. I did it, worked harder than everybody else here, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God. That was working in me. The book of Hebrews states, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You see, the only way to serve God acceptably is by the grace of God. If we try to serve God in and through our own strength and in our own efforts in the flesh, it will inevitably fail. It doesn't matter what sort of work you do for God. If you do it in the power and work of the flesh, then it will not amount to anything. We need the grace of God to serve him. We need the grace of God to work for us and in us that our labor may be acceptable before the Lord. See, it always comes back to grace. And that is why Paul concludes this section with the exhortation of verse 7 regarding the application of grace. Take a look at verse 7 really quick. We'll wrap this up. He says, consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Paul commands Timothy to consider what he says. The word consider is written in the imperative mood, which tells us that it was written as a command, a very strong exhortation. Consider all these things, Timothy. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. I believe the point Paul was hitting over and over again was the fact that as Timothy would continue the work of the ministry, that more than anything else, he would need to be strong in the grace of God. That the grace of God may be at work in his life. The faithful teacher is a product of God's grace. The good soldier needs the grace of God in order to withstand and to stand during the many different hardships he faces. The honest athlete is only able to be obedient to the rules by the grace of God. The hardworking farmer is empowered to serve God acceptably only by and through the grace of God. Listen, church family, we need the grace of God for eternal life, and we need the grace of God for each and every day of our temporal life. May we cling to the grace of God that God has offered to us through his son, Jesus Christ. 
May we not look to our own flesh thinking that we can handle things on our own. God never intended it to be that way. Yeah, he knows we need his help. He knows we need his grace. And he has supplied an abundance of it for each and every one of us. I want to close with what John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes in the opening chapter of his gospel, chapter one. Chapter one. In reference to Christ, he states this. And of his, speaking of Christ, fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When John writes grace for grace, the idea is that God's provided grace upon grace upon grace uh, upon grace, right? There is enough grace for each and every one of us in and through Jesus Christ, May we unashamedly cling to and proclaim the grace of God upon our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that we are saved by your grace. Lord, we thank you for our eternal redemption, Lord, is secure because of your grace. But Lord, we thank you that it is your grace that empowers us day by day, Lord, to be faithful to be used by you, to be strengthened, to endure hardship, Lord, to work hard for you. Lord, all these things happen because of your grace. We need your grace, Lord. It is only by your grace that we are here this morning, breathing the air we breathe. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. And, Lord, we don't want to take your grace lightly, Lord, We want to live our lives wholeheartedly in appreciation of your grace and in your grace, Lord, not in our own strength, not by our own might, but by your grace, Lord. May we live a life that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, that we would be obedient because of your grace that's there to pick us up when we fall. We can't do it on our own, Lord. We need you, and we need your grace, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you've provided abundantly for us, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.